Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders in fundraising and philanthropy. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Today's guest is Brenda Asare, president and CEO of the Alfred Group, a woman and minority owned and led firm, which over the past four decades has provided advice and support to more than 3,000 nonprofits in such critical areas as fundraising, governance, and organizational strategy. Prior to joining the firm, she served as Chief Development Officer with the American Red Cross in Chicago, leading disaster fundraising efforts generating over $100 million. Over her career, she's guided clients across the country to more than $2 billion in philanthropic support. We caught up with her at the Summer Symposium of the Giving Institute, where she serves on the board. How has the conference been for you? It's been a terrific conference. Yesterday, it was really focused more on the sector, and there was just so much rich information. And that's one of the reasons I really enjoy coming to the Summer Symposium from a professional development standpoint, to be able to really hear from voices um, outside of my work, because oftentimes we have our heads down just doing the work of running a business, serving clients, speaking, but to really kind of sit back for a few days and kind of absorb what's been going on hear other perspectives. I think one of the things I just didn't have a great appreciation for until yesterday was really the impact that consultants can play, our clients can play as advocates on the policy side. That's never really been something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, but there's so many laws and policies that are about to be enacted or in discussion, and I think yesterday gave me an appreciation of what we can do to continue to empower our clients on becoming activists for our sector. So that was really, really insightful for me yesterday. Talk about that a little bit. What What is the importance of activism and maybe even how you define activism in this context of this, this work we do? Yeah, I, I think in the work that we do, and, and I and what I heard yesterday, there there will be there are discussions around changes to the tax laws as it relates to donor advised funds mm-hmm. and time limits. And one of the reasons that donor advised funds are are being scrutinized is the fact that so much money have gone into donor advised funds, and a lot of money just sits there. Right. Donors are allowed to take a charitable deduction, oftentimes over a five-year time period, given the five-year carryover rule. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't benefit society. The donor gets a write-off, the dollars stay put, and it doesn't go out to do good. And that's the whole point of a right. donor advised fund, is to do good, not for the benefit of the donor for a tax purpose. So with these conversations taking place, nonprofits have a real opportunity to write their um, legislators about these discussions and urging them to keep in mind the benefits. Yes, we want more money to be released, but we also um, don't want it to be harmful to those donors who are releasing dollars in terms of what they can count and when they can count and when they can take a write-off. Right. 
And so they're basically, you know, either a 15 year look ahead or a 50 year look ahead. That's really long. Those are really long periods of time that the donor, when they set up um, a donor advice fund, that they need to make a decision on which of the two. And then there's so much uncertainty. But And so I just feel in terms of being an activist, it's bringing your voice to the table, um, bringing the voices of your volunteers, of your donors to, to support um, policy and laws, tax laws, that's going to help our sector grow stronger. We represent such a, uh, a vital aspect of change in our country and not-for-profits do work that the, governor, the government cannot afford to do or can't do. Right. We enable so much in our in our world and i think nonprofits don't understand the active role that they can play in bringing their voices for change maybe they've been afraid i mean i know there's always been that conversation about can we go over towards something that might be perceived as lobbying is that is that the the barrier to action or is it something different well many many clients they have a lobbyist, but the lobbyist is there typically for a special purpose. Mm -hmm. So it might be for there's a problem. They're trying to get dollars released from the state. I know a number of years ago, Illinois had a problem where dollars were just locked. And many of our clients hired lobbyists to help them unlock those dollars. Right. Um, the state wasn't releasing dollars for one reason or another. And many organizations who rely on state funding were really, really harmed. Many of them went out of business. They were scrambling. Most of them don't have large endowments. So in order to do programming, you need money, you know? And so I think in terms of the fear factor, they may look at it from, it's gonna cost, it's gonna cost. And I think oftentimes it's just a lack of education. What are the ways that they can activate their voices and the voices of their constituents and the voices of their donors and and stand up for themselves. Um, oftentimes, you know, when I first got into um, fundraising, I can remember donors or even staff members would describe fundraising as begging for dollars. Sure. And I felt that was such a disrespectful way to refer to the opportunity that we were presenting, an opportunity for a donor to feel a sense of joy that they're really making a difference. It was demeaning to those of us who were doing the asking where it put us at a disadvantage. So it felt like there was a power dynamic between me as the fundraiser right. and the donor where I'm actually begging them for dollars. And there wasn't a sense of dignity or respect around the fact that um, I was I was there to create an opportunity for an individual um, or an organization to change lives. Have you seen that change? I, I have seen that change in our sector. And I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that because I think we have a better understanding of the value and values exchange that takes place that people really do give out of a desire to make a difference. And they don't see it as begging for dollars. And one of the favorite things that I get to do in my job is to interview donors about their dreams for organizations that they may be connected to, especially mm -hmm. as 
organizations are looking to the future and creating a vision of impact on what the future, their future is going to look like and how they're going to deepen impact in the communities and individuals whom they partner with and serve. And I'm just, I just love talking to the donors because I just see their hearts and what they really want to do is to be a part of something that makes a difference and tell, tell the story of change. And they realize that with money, you can't take it with you and you want to do good, as much good as you can with it. But also there's an opportunity for nonprofits today to look at a more expansive view of philanthropy and what philanthropy means. And sometimes that may be the money piece of it. Mm -hmm. Other times it may be your time. It could be maybe you have a special skill or experience that you can bring to the table. Um, The fourth, you know, we talk about the T of your time, talent, treasure. The latest one is testimony. And that's where you can actually use your um, constituents to be advocates for you. Right. Sometimes they bring lived experience that's also um, as effective. They could be the storytellers because we know we all are we all resonate by a story when you talk about right. how decisions are made. Not only philanthropically, I would say in life, eighty percent of our decisions are made first from sure. an emotional standpoint. Twenty percent rational. Right. And so this testimony piece is that's where you can actually use your constituents or work with your constituents to tell the story of change when you're talking with donors. My life was like this before. Now, because of the partnership that I have with this organization, my life and and the life of my community or my children now look like this. Right. No, that's wonderful. And I haven't I haven't heard people refer to it as one of the T's before. And and testimony is something that we should all immediately understand. It it sounds like something that you haven't just experienced in your professional life, but maybe your personal life that you know the impact. Um, Let me go back and how did this all start for you? How did you end up in this work? I I fell into this work. I was about to graduate from from college. And during that time, this is back in the mid eighties, my grandfather was diagnosed with lung cancer. And he was truly one of my most favorite people in the world because I knew I was one of his favorites. I'm the oldest of a lot of grandkids. And so we just, we had a very special relationship. And when he passed away, I was in my senior year of college and I wanted to do something. I was a psychology and business major, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And one day I decided maybe I'll work for a nonprofit. And this is during the days where we actually have phone books still. And I opened the phone book and the first nonprofit that I got to was the American Cancer Society. Right under the A's. Right under the A's. I didn't go any further. So I called them up and said, I'm about to graduate from college. I'm looking for a job. Do you have, are you hiring? Because that's how we did it back in the 80s. Sure. And the response was, well, why don't you come in and we'd like to have a conversation. And so I did. I went in and I was hired. I mean, you know, I took a few interviews. And my first job was with the American Cancer Society, where I was a program 
maybe it was a manager, but what I did was I went out and I talked to organizations about cancer and the safeguards that people should put in place. So breast cancer, lung cancer. I went to prisons. I went to junior league clubs. I went to school clubs. I did the Great American Smokeout was, again, oh, not smoking. Sure. Remember those yeah, good old days, American, Great American Smokeout? Oh, sure. So I would run those campaigns. And it was all about educating people because right. I felt that perhaps if my grandfather was more aware of the consequences of smoking and, the, and, the, and he smoked the unfiltered, because back then I don't know if they had filtered cigarettes. I don't know because he was smoking a long time by the time I met him. Um so I just felt like maybe, you know, I could do something to help other families be spared from what I went through and help people live longer if they knew what the warning signs were and they were able to get help sooner. So that's how I started. So were I fell you, into it. Do you Did you share your grandfather's story as a part of, was that part of testimony for you? That you was a part. It was, it was really, for me, it was a part of the testimony it was a part of my why Mm. why i didn't look any further when it said cancer Um, certainly as i reflect back on it now if i were to be on a a a board or give to an organization i have this personal story that that i can connect to my passion for the organization right and Mm -hmm. and so you know many times I work with organizations where they may have a board comprised of 50% individuals from the community because they want to make sure that they also have the community voice. And the challenge that I often hear from the leadership of the the board is, oh, we have these people on our board, 50% from the community, they can't afford the give get. So, should we change our bylaws? Because we this needs to be a fundraising board where people can give ten thousand dollars or more a year, and and we have board members who can't do that. And with the testimony piece of it, what I'm able to then do is help them to look at those board members as being valuable to their funding, because many times these organizations are funded through state dollars, and they go to, in my case. In, Chicago, in, in Illinois, they go to Springfield to lobby for dollars. Sure. So I'm like, okay, well, let's look at it like this. They may not be able to contribute $10,000, but what they can do is take their voices right. when you go to Springfield to help you unlock millions of dollars. The personal testimonies of those individuals who benefit or serve or, or, or are served or partner with you in serving the community, their voices are much more compelling to us, our representative, because they're living proof of right. so your experience. work. Yes, absolutely. Of your work and your impact. Right. So hearing from them is a lot more impactful than our paid staff talking about, look at all the great work we're doing. The great work is standing in front of them. So then they're helping you to unlock. So you're a lawyer or an accountant or whatever, you don't live in the community. You don't have the lived experience. Mm -hmm. You're not using the services and programs. So your lens is completely different in terms of your testimony about the work. You're looking at it from solely, you know, ROI, fiduciary, governance. They're living it. 
Right. So, and they're helping you to unlock dollars that you wouldn't otherwise be able to. So there is a value in those board members because they may not be able to give you 10,000, but they can help you unlock other dollars. I can imagine there are a lot of people, um, especially in Chicago, whose voices really haven't been heard unless you give them that, that doorway to being able to be impactful in the way that, that works for them. Sure, for some people it's money, but for other people it's it's conveying their lived experience. It's conveying it. Right. You're absolutely right. Are, are you a Chicago native or where, where are you from? No, I grew up in South Carolina. Oh, okay. Right outside Charleston, a okay. town called Somerville, South Carolina. Okay. And um, my family is from South Carolina throughout. So that's where I grew up and um, didn't leave South Carolina until I went to uh, graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis. Okay. So you've been all around. And I know you're all around for your work. Yes. I just didn't know how much of a place, like you mentioned your grandfather. Obviously, that was a key part of your decision about what you wanted to do with your life. Um, what about where you're from? How did you end up in Chicago? Why Chicago? It's very different from the Carolinas. It's very different from the Carolinas. Um, when I when I moved to Chicago, I was in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So I was working for the American um, Red Cross by that time in mm-hmm. St. Louis. And my husband accepted a transfer oh. to Chicago. So that's how we got to Chicago. Okay. It's, it's through his job. And then um, it, it was some time, I know, before you took on your present role. But maybe could you talk a little bit about that, what, what you're doing today and how you came to that, to that role? Yeah, today, for the past seven years, I have been serving as the president and CEO of the Alford Group. I've been with the Alford Group 17 years. And... I guess I would say we found each other through a client engagement. I was chief development officer for the Red Cross in Chicago, and we retained the Alfred Group to help us with our strategic planning. That's one of the services that the Alfred Group provides. And I just clicked with our consultant and uh, the Red, we were in the midst of a campaign and you know, whenever you do a campaign, it's a great time to look at your future because you're moving into a new building, you're expanding your services, you're thinking about how are we going to operationalize a, a, a different reality with even greater impact with the new facility as a lever. And I can, the, our consultant and the, from the Alpha Group, we just really had a connection and we stayed in touch and we became friends. And when the Alpha Group was looking for a vice president, um, she reached out to me and I really had not thought about being a consultant. The thing about consulting, most cons- I think before you get into it, you think you have to know everything. I knew I knew a lot, but I, did I know everything about development? I didn't think, you don't think about it, right? Because you think you know what you know. And oftentimes when you've been doing development, I had to remember myself. I probably do know a lot more than my clients know about it because I spend time. That's what I do. I spend yeah, time you're doing in their it. Shoes, right. Literally. I was running, you know, development departments. I my department had seventeen people. We were raising a lot of money, disaster mm-hmm. fundraising, annual fundraising, capital campaigns, and I thought about. It. I'm like, you know what? I guess I have done a lot, and I may know a little bit more than some people. And what I don't know, I'll learn it. I'm a quick learner. I can figure it out. And there are other people. So the great thing about the author group is we work in teams. So we bring our collective experience to help our clients 
go as as far as they can. And oftentimes, you know, our dreams for our clients are bigger because we see their potential. Because it's just like anything else, you know, you know what you know. And it, oftentimes you need someone else looking in to say, you have all of these great things checked off that you can do you well positioned to, to accomplish. But because you're doing the work, oftentimes you don't see your own greatness. And oh, I wow. think that's the great thing about being a consultant. We can, sure. We're looking from outside in and we can see what are the great things, what are all the assets, and what are the things that you need to do to really move your mission yeah. to a different and higher level. You have to go beyond the forest to, yeah. to all those you're trees right. out there. I love that. Yeah. yeah I, oftentimes I, we I, all are in the forest, right? Well, sure. And yeah. I wonder when I, when I hear that, um, you know, clearly one of the things that distinguishes the work that you do, that the firm does, is this strategic lens. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people who uh, have the opportunity to work on, you know, that one tree at a time, or I'm, I'm mixing up my, my uh, analogies with the forest here. But, um, but that strategic lens, how appealing is that for you personally? Why is that so important to you? A strategic lens to me means you're bringing diverse experience. You've tried some things that maybe didn't work. And I, I always see things that didn't work, not as failings, but learnings. And you continue to, to hone your skills or your practice. One of the things that have always been a wonder for me and why I've loved being in this sector and the opportunities that I've had throughout my career has been this construct of being in a laboratory. And I've been blessed to work with um, managers um, who have allowed me to kind of play where my work felt like I was at play. I could try different things, try new ideas, tweak them, yeah. continue to improve. The Offer Group is a learning organization. When we don't get a sale, um, we always go back and ask, you know, what did we do well? What could we have done differently? Because we want to learn and continue to be a value partner. So that strategic lens to me is not only bringing diverse experience, but also understanding the kinds of questions, because oftentimes the questions can be often, oftentimes are even more impactful than the answers. Right. And it's so funny, as you talk about this, uh, we had a conversation offline uh, about your family. And you mentioned that one of your kids um, was interested in medicine, yes, but found themselves gravitating to the lab. Bi and you just And you just mentioned the lab. And, and, yeah. and I don't hear that as much as we'd like to about work in our world where people sometimes are afraid to take steps that might involve risk, but have this potential great reward for the communities we serve. But you just described it as the lab. And I, I wonder, what does that lab look like for you as we're getting out of this situation we've been in for 16 months, but just also the kind of world that we've worked in in the past few decades? Is there an opportunity for that lab to really you know, grow and, and be more impactful in our world? When I think about this lab of the next normal, right. I'm excited by it and I'm exhausted by it. <laughs> I'm excited because it's an opportunity to create something new. Mm. One of the things that helped the Alfred group 
navigate the pandemic was really looking at things from a beginner's eye. So we had to really think if this were a startup, because we all were kind of in that place because we didn't know what the next week, the next month was going to look like as it related to our clients, what shifts that we need to make as an organization in response to our clients. And so we really had to look at the world as a startup. So we had a mindset that if we were starting this company again, what would we do differently? Because we had to do, we couldn't do what we had been doing. And I love that part of our COVID response, mm-hmm. COVID-19 pandemic response, where we had to look at ourselves with new eyes. We had to prioritize what were the most important things for us to be focused on. We had to think about how are we going to relate to each other differently in this tech virtual environment? How are we still going to create connection, collaboration, and keep our culture intact? Mm -hmm. What are the changes that we need to make around structure? Because we have offices in different parts of the country. We still need to feel connected. We also had to experiment with our clients to see what was going to work for them. Um, We ended up doing some restructuring because one of the things that we realized was clients at that point didn't care so much about where the butt was located, but where the brain power was coming from. Mm. So it was really about the brains. And that brain could have been in Seattle, Charleston, South Carolina, New York, Arizona, the different locations that we have team members located. Before COVID, I would hear about what is it going to cost to fly someone in? Why do we need to have someone from Seattle if you're in Chicago? Hmm. Here, it became agnostic in terms of where people were located. Sure. And that felt like a lab because now what I was able to do was to bring together the best thinkers from across the firm to help our clients if they had you know issues around um their annual campaigns. We have people who understand doing special events, but now if you're an arts client and you have to go virtual, I was able to pull from team members, you know, in New York who had arts background, talk about how do we how do we bring light out of darkness? Because for the theater world, they all went dark, but oh, we need to find how do we light things up mm-hmm. through you know a virtual environment. So that laboratory continues to be something, the DEI work, um, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, isn't new to the firm. So I really had to think through what does it mean to us now? And I knew what it looked like prior to the pandemic, but I needed to think through what it's going to look like as we navigate through the weeks and months ahead on the heel of George Floyd's, you know, killing And uh, what we were hearing from our clients, they needed support. They needed to understand what does it look like when we, the the Alpha Group started talking about a culture of equity. What does that look like? Our clients, they're scrambling. What does that look like? Where are the areas we need to lean into? And for us, it starts with, let's start with your board. That is one place. But most importantly, let's kind of stand stand back and do a scan of your entire organization and look at where do you have opportunities to start? It's right. like eating an elephant and we cannot eat the whole elephant. So we start at one leg. Right. So when we think about the equity journey, which leg are we going to start with? 
Let's start with the one of first having the conversation about it. And then maybe the leg that we're going to nibble on once we understand implicit bias or we understand how equity is different from equality. So understanding language, a shared language and understanding where each person is on their journey and then how that then informs the journey of the organization. So this whole, so when I talk about it being exhausting, it's exhausting because there's just so much and I'm stimulated by all of the learnings of it and the opportunities that we have to lead on this front. I'm exhausted by it because there's just so much to learn and it's not a straight path and every path is different. And besides, eating an elephant takes a long time, it which takes is pretty exhausting. a long time. And that's an analogy in case anybody is vegan or working for World Wildlife. Um, yes, we're not actually advocating eating elephants. Um. No, eat more cucumbers. <laughs> it's like eating a jackfruit. <laughs> jackfruit sales just went, just went up. <laughs> so uh, you've described this, this lab really, really brilliantly and what it means to you. And I'm so glad you brought in the DEI piece. Um, and I'm wondering if you if you imagine that it's going to be not only possible, but but likely that we're going to be able to keep people in our sector focused on these issues when they find out they can walk outside without wearing a mask. Are we going to get people who are from one community to recognize they need to work with others in another community, that their board should be reflective of not just the past, but the future? These kinds of things we all talk about. And they're often through the prism of, of the way people define diversity, which is different also by age and other things. But are we going to get people to think forward through that lab that, you're designing? That is such a, a great question. And I am encouraged. And the reason I am encouraged that this is not a moment, but a movement for change, is that number one, we can talk about it. In my 30 plus years of working, we've never had conversation about race and what it means or about privilege or trying to call people in versus calling people out and taking the time to really talk about what systems of, of oppression exist and what does that mean, what's the impact. So I'm encouraged, number one, because we're talking about it, we're increasing, increasing awareness of it. Number two, I'm encouraged because I feel that we have allies and accomplices. It's one thing when all people of color are trying to push, it's just like the civil rights movement. We needed accomplices. We needed other folks to be a part of the journey with us, to amplify our voices, to elevate why this is important for the greater good. I'm encouraged because I, I feel that there's a lot of energy, mm -hmm. focus energy, there's action, and I feel we're not alone. And I'm very encouraged. Yesterday, at, during one of the sessions, there was a report out on volunteerism and and it talked about different what we're seeing increases and decreases of volunteerism and, the, and where we're seeing the increase in volunteerism is around the construct of issues and that was very encouraging to me that people feel that they could come together to make change and there's a sense of community. Mm -hmm. 
So that's one of the reasons I'm really hopeful that the call for social justice will be sustainable and we will see change. I was also encouraged when we think about Giving Tuesday, and I never thought about this until yesterday when the speaker highlighted this point. One of the reasons that Giving Tuesday reached an all-time high in 2020 was there was a sense of community. Donors felt like there was a common enemy that together we can conquer Mm -hmm. and we can win against this common enemy of the pandemic, of keeping communities safe, of keeping communities strong, of keeping our client and appreciating nature and the quality and how it enhances the quality of life. And it was a rally cry for philanthropists. If you had five cents to give, or if you have 500 million to give, we were all in it together, pushing for the betterment of so many people. And that's really inspiring when we really sit back and think about what we all have gone through in the last 18 months. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.